Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up, please, to the book of Romans. Romans, the second chapter, is where we're going to be this evening, but I actually would like to begin at the very end of chapter 1. But let's get our Bibles cranking in the book of Romans, and we will work together there for the uh, entirety of our study this evening. It is great to see everybody tonight, even though it has been sort of a overcasty sort of day. It is still the very best day of the week. It's Sunday. It is what we refer to as the Lord's Day. And it's great because we get to come together not just once, we get to come together on the second occasion uh, to be uh, collectively bring our worship unto God. And for that, uh, I am thankful and I am encouraged by your presence this evening. Lots to say this evening and I want to get right to it. Beginning in Romans chapter 1, after Paul has had this very lengthy discussion of the sins of the ungodly and the unrighteous, he wraps all of that up by saying at the end of Romans 1 and in verse 32, Romans 1 and in verse 32, that though they know God's decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You can almost hear it, can't you? I know that I can. As that scroll was opened there in the church at Rome, and some brothers stood up and began to read from what we would know as the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, as Paul is rendering God's verdict on sinners who did not acknowledge Him, who did not honor Him, who did not give Him thanks, you can almost hear in your mind some brethren sitting there in that congregation as they began to start letting out maybe some shouts of Amen as Paul lists off and pronounces God's judgment on those wicked people. That maybe as he read there in verse 18, what we know is verse 18, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against those people, someone would have bellowed out, Amen. Or maybe verse 27, talking about those people, how they receive in themselves the due penalty of their error. Amen to that. And then as Paul pronounces in that letter the, the threefold God giving them up, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind. Maybe there was a trifecta of amen, amen, amen. All of that culminating in verse 32 with saying those who practice such things deserve to die. The biggest and hardiest amen to that. It's not hard to imagine that there maybe would have been a certain segment within that congregation at Rome who as they heard of all of the sinful things that pagan people did, they just wagged their head in shame. Oh, what terrible things those people have done while at the same time feeling very proud of themselves that you know what, I don't do those things. Paul, you tell them. You lay it on them, Paul. You tell those idol-loving sexually perverted, God-ignoring sinners exactly what they've got coming to them. Paul, I like what you said in verse 20. They are without excuse. But as soon as those brethren finish patting themselves on the back, Paul very quickly turned the tables. Chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. There Paul says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. 
Paul knew exactly how chapter 1 was going to be received. He knew that there would be some who would use what he wrote to somehow give themselves maybe, maybe a few gold stars for all of the evil things that they haven't done. And so in chapter 2, Paul locks his target and he sets his sight on those who had a sense of entitlement, those who had a feeling of superiority, those who had an air of arrogance about them that had caused them to become wholly self-righteous. Because while it is certainly true that the wrath of God is expressed against the ungodly and the unrighteous and those who have tried to remove God from the picture, that's chapter 1, Paul's going to show in chapter 2 that the gospel also pronounces judgment on those who do know God and those who do profess godliness, but they are eat up with self-justification and self-righteousness. Paul intends to put a stop to foolish pride in one's own performance and achievements. Paul especially wants to make sure that no one imagines that somehow they are better than others or that they are even fundamentally different from the people described in chapter 1. Paul wants to make sure that before anybody in the Roman congregation goes around writing the name sinner on someone else's name tag, that they make it a point to look at their own name tag because the same thing could be written there. The gospel has a way of just leveling the playing field and help us to see that we are all sinners. And that is critically important. In fact, that was critically important for the church at Rome to understand. Because when people think that they are somehow better than others, that ends up creating classes. It ends up separating people. We talk about how sin separates us from God, and it does that. But sin also separates us from other individuals. And in a congregation of God's people, that is the kind of thing that just destroys unity. Think about it. There are those who would have been sitting there in the church at Rome who as chapter 1 was being read aloud in their hearing, they would have hung their head low and they would have said, that's me. That's talking about me. That's where I came from. I once was a pagan. I was an idol worshiper. I served the creature rather than the Creator. And at the very same time, there would have been others in the congregation who as those words were being read, they would have kind of... They would have kind of sat up a little bit taller. And they would have begun to pat themselves on the back. I'm so glad that I'm a Jew. I've always been a part of the people of God. I've always known the law of God and I'm proud here to say that I've always followed that law. Do you see how those disparate attitudes could create some division in that church? And while we might look at that and we might say, Shoo! Those Jews and those Gentiles, boy, they need to learn how to get along. They need to get some things worked out. I'm glad Paul sent them this letter to fix all of that. Glad we don't have those problems today. Oh, hold on just a second now. One writer, I read this and it really made Romans 2 very personal to me. One writer said, he said, the church member who comes from a Christian family, who's been brought up to know the Bible, who's always been in the right church, whose lifestyle has always been outwardly respectable, that Christian may be tempted to think that he is superior to the new Christian 
who's clueless about the Bible, who didn't grow up going to church, whose life is a moral mess. And in that way, there are still plenty of Jews, quote-unquote, in our churches today. I read that and I said, ouch. That just stings. But it does help me to see that this letter called Romans, it is still very relevant for us today. This evening, as we continue our preaching theme for 2021, exploring the book of Romans, the gospel according to Romans, we come to the second chapter. And in this chapter, Paul, in a powerful way, is going to help us to see ourselves as we really are. Especially if you are the kind of Christian who grew up in the church, or maybe to his audience here, those of you who grew up in the synagogue, we want to see what the gospel has to say to us, even if it makes us feel very, very uncomfortable. This chapter really breaks down into two sections. There's lots of ways you could break this chapter down, but I'm going to break it down into two main sections this evening. And the first of those sections is really all about the judgment of God. Paul anticipates in this chapter that there are going to be folks who feel like somehow they are excused from God's judgment because, well, well, we haven't lived like all those godless pagans back in chapter 1. Again, the guys back in chapter 1 verse 20 where Paul said, they are without excuse. Look how Paul does a play on words and says that. Look at chapter 2 verse 1 again. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now, Paul does not address these folks by name here in verse 1. He'll do that when we get down to verse 17. But it is clear from the context that he is talking right now to the Jewish brethren. He's talking to those Jewish Christians in that congregation. He's talking to those people who ought to have known better but they are not doing better. We know, verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? These Jewish Christians had developed the mindset that all those those bad pagans out there, those bad pagans, they're going to get what's coming to them. God, God, you just give it to them. But Paul says, do you think? Do you think that God's going to bring the hammer down on those folks for their wickedness? But then when you, Jews, end up doing the exact same things, that somehow you're going to be exempt from the judgment of God? Absolutely not. There's nothing that says you're going to be exempt from that. Verse 4, he continues. Do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says, don't walk around telling yourself that, well, I I must be okay because, because God hasn't struck me dead today. Well, there's a reason God hasn't struck you dead today. And it's not because you're so innocent. Oh, no, 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 no. It's because God is being kind to you. God is being patient toward you so that you will have the time to repent, verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That expression, storing up wrath in verse 5, that is the idea of banking the anger of God. You Think about what do you got in your IRA? 
What do you got in your 401k? What do you got in your certificate of deposit? Well, I don't know what everybody has in their deposits and in their 401ks in a financial sense, but I know what you have in it spiritually. You have God's wrath. That is what we are storing up when we live in sin. And someday, someday that CD, it's going to reach maturity and God's going to make a withdrawal of His anger on us. Because even though I know better, all too many times I don't do better. Let's just stop right here. It does seem... It seems as if the Jews in the first century, and in particular here in the church at Rome, they had imagined in their mind that somehow, because of their heritage, that that meant that they could kind of you know, flash a get-out-of-jail-free card. Oh, the judgment of God? <laughs> no thanks. I'm a card-carrying Jew, don't you know? And yes, I realize that's a subway card. That's the best that I had available in my pocket at the time. But I wonder sometimes, I wonder sometimes if we kind of think in those same terms. That since we are members of the church of Christ, that hey, we get the same card and we can pull that card out whenever we need to. I mean, yeah, look at all those bad pagans out there doing all that bad pagan stuff. I'm glad I'm not like them since I go to a sound church and I pray every day and I read my Bible every day. Hey, here's my get out of jail free card. I'm exempt from God's judgment. Nope. Verse 6, Paul continues on. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Would you notice in those verses the emphasis on everybody once again? Verse 6, each one. Verse 9, every human being. Verse 10, everyone, Jews, Greeks, doesn't matter. Everyone is eligible for the judgment of God or... Or conversely, for the blessings and the reward that God gives. Which means then that your Jewish lineage doesn't matter. Your inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant doesn't matter. Your history that can be traced all the way back doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. God is going to render to everybody according to what? According to their deeds, their works, how they've lived, their heart and what flows from their heart, what it is that they have been seeking in this life. And that is because God's judgment, it is impartial here. If you're reading from the old King James, God is no respecter of persons. That means that God is completely fair and unbiased. Every single person will all be held to the exact same standard. There is no extra brownie points for you just because you are a Jew. You don't get some kind of a special standard because you're a Jew, a standard that, well, well, you've earned this and everybody else has to live up to this standard, but you get this special one over here. Nope. No, everybody will be judged by the same standard. Everyone will be judged the same. Everybody will get what they deserve. In fact, Paul really doubles down on that beginning in verse 12. 
In verse 12, Paul says there, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Paul wants the Jewish brethren in Rome to understand that, first of all, nobody's going to be excluded from judgment. Notice once again the emphasis on all, all, a couple times there in verse 12. But furthermore, he wants them to understand that just being a hearer, just being a knower of God's Word, that doesn't make you righteous. Just because you can quote the Torah, that that, that doesn't make you righteous. Just because you can maybe even quote the whole Bible, that that doesn't make you righteous. Just because maybe you know some stuff in the Bible that lots of people out in the world, they don't know that information, that doesn't help you if you're not doing it, going to the synagogue ever since you were a kid, that's not what makes you right. And maybe to update that for us today, going to church every Sunday and every Wednesday and every gospel meeting and going to Bible class ever since you were knee-high to a grasshopper, that in and of itself doesn't make you right either. I remember a few years ago, a brother in a business meeting, as he was trying to defend his position on something, He asserted very boldly, well, I've been going to church all my life. And that was the basis for why he knew that he was right. Well, with all due respect to that brother, that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Paul says in verse 13 that you have to do God's law if you want to be justified. Can I just say a quick word here about this word justified? Because justification is going to be a big part of Paul's vocabulary here in the book of Romans. One fellow defined justified this way. He said justified means declared to be in the right. I'll say that again. Declared to be in the right. It is a legal term where if maybe you are summoned into a courtroom for a legal proceeding, and you go through all of the judicial proceeding for whatever the reason is that you are there, if at the end of that trial the judge then pronounces one party guilty, then that means he is pronouncing the other party to be in the right. The party who is in the right, they have been vindicated. He or she is in the right. They are justified. And one of the dominant questions in the book of Romans is going to be, Well, just who does God declare to be right? And how does God declare people to be right? That's a key idea when we get into chapter 3 and into chapter 4. But right here, Paul says that if you think that you can be declared right simply because you have the law, you've got a copy of the Bible and you know some stuff in it, and just because you happen to go to the right church every Sunday, and just because you happen to have good godly Christian parents, well, well, you need to think again. Because that's not the basis for a person being right with God. Because Paul goes on to say that even Gentiles, verse 14, even Gentiles who do not have the law, when they by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't even have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Do you see once again? It's being a doer 
that matters here. Not just being a hearer of the law, not just having the law. These people here that Paul's talking about, these Gentiles, they don't even have the law. And yet their conscience directs them to doing some right things some of the time. You know, you don't have to have a copy of the Bible in order to know, don't murder people. You don't need the Scriptures in order to know that. Generally speaking, everybody knows, don't murder people. You don't need to know God's law in order to know that. And so Paul says, it is doing the right thing that matters in the end. Now Gentiles, Paul says, they don't know enough to to write themselves a Bible, but they certainly know enough to do some of the things that they ought to do. And they do those things. And they do that, whether they realize it or not, in light of the fact that judgment's coming, verse 16. Verse 16, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And so this whole section, these first 16 verses, it is all about judgment, that God's judgment is certain. That's verse 2. God's judgment is inescapable. That's verse 3. God's judgment will be impartial. That's verse 11. In verse 16, God's judgment, it is inevitable. God's judgment is coming and it is coming on all people. Now, right about here, Paul probably knows that there's going to be some folks who as they're reading along here and you get up to about the midway point of this chapter, there's going to be some folks who are who are still going to try to do some wiggling. They're going to kind of wiggle themselves out of this. There's going to be some folks in that Roman church who would say, eh, I hear what you're saying, Paul, but I still don't really think that that fits me. I don't really think that you're describing and talking about me. And so what Paul does in the remaining verses is he just pounds away at those objections even more explicitly. If you didn't get it through the first 16 verses, Jewish brethren, I'm going to be very explicit about about it now. Paul just dismantles this myth of the safety of our Jewishness. Verse 17. Paul says in verse 17, But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know His will, and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge. Just stop right there. Notice how Paul is acknowledging that yes, there are some advantages to being a Jew. If you were born a Jew, for example, that placed you right in the middle of God's people. And that meant as well that you got early exposure to God's law. You were around the people who regularly read God's law, studied God's law, then told that law to their children. That would be a great and marvelous advantage to have. That puts you ahead of, I don't know, I don't know what the percentages would be, but it would put you ahead of most people in the world. You have an opportunity now to grow up in a wonderful environment. An environment where you can can know the law, and then you can teach that to your children. And in the middle of all this darkness, you can be a light. And when you see people who are kind of groping blindly throughout this life, you can then try and be a guide to them. Those are all wonderful privileges that for the Jews at that time, it ought to have humbled them. They should have said, wow, God's really blessed us. Man, we ought to seize upon that and use that in the right way. It ought to have made them doers of the law. But instead, what Paul's going to say is, Paul says, Jews, you've absolutely wasted those advantages. 
You have flushed them down the commode. How? Verse 21. He says, verse 21, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You guys are teaching all this good stuff, but you're not actually doing it. As Jesus once said about the Pharisees, they say, but do not. You break the very law that you profess to know so well. Don't you guys ever teach yourself before you go start teaching a bunch of other people? You preach, for example, against stealing, verse 21 says. Hey, that's good. We should preach against stealing. But then Paul says, you yourself steal. What's up with that? How can you tell somebody not to steal and then you turn right around and steal? Verse 22. Verse 22, you who say that one must not commit adultery... Do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. As Jesus said, you guys, you say and you say and you say and you do not do. All your heritage that you lean so heavily upon, all of your family tree, your perfect attendance chart at the synagogue, That isn't going to change anything on the day of judgment if you're not doing what God said yourself. In fact, in these verses, what Paul is conveying is that the way that you are living, it dishonors God. It dishonors Him greatly. In fact, that is the very thing that the people in chapter 1 were condemned for. They did not honor God. And Paul is showing that you Jews... You are guilty of the very same thing. You may have went about it in kind of a different way, but you at the end of the day are also failing to honor God. In other words, a Jew who breaks God's law is no better than a Gentile. In fact, look at verse 24. Verse 24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Those Jews who knew the law of God forward and backward and then forward again, they actually, Paul says, they actually were hurting the work of God because everybody around them saw them and everybody knew the standard of teaching to which they should have been living up to and they weren't doing it. And i got to tell you, this is where some stuff starts to sting because is this not the very same thing that happens? whenever people out in the world here in 2021, when they see us, when they see religious people, people who profess to know God, when they see us living hypocritically, they say, look at those folks. They make a big deal about going to church and they go to their church services and they just rail hard against sin. Man, that preacher got up on their Sunday morning service and he just went to town on temptation and sin and man, we need to stay away from all of that. And then... All those people go right out that door and on Monday they're right back into those very same sins. What's going on there? What a joke. What a crock that Christianity stuff is. Paul actually quotes from the Old Testament there in verse 24. It's a quotation from Isaiah the 52nd chapter and in verse 5. And the idea there in Isaiah 52 and the idea here in Romans chapter 2 is that a professing believer who is not genuine in their life is actually worse than someone who doesn't even claim to be a believer at all. You stop and think about that. When you live hypocritically, what you are doing is actually worse than what pagans out in the world are doing. 
When God's very own people, the people that He claims as His own, when they don't honor Him and His standards, the people of the world look at that and they conclude that, you know what, there's just not a whole lot of value to that Christianity business. In fact, you've probably even heard people say before, talk to folks and try to encourage them to study the Bible or maybe accept an invitation to church. And what's one of the most common excuses that you hear today? Folks say, eh, I'd like to do that, but you know what? There's just too many hypocrites down there. I know people, and they claim one thing, and they do another. There's just too many hypocrites, and I don't want anything to do with that. And I realize that is a lame and feeble excuse, and it won't stand on Judgment Day. But my question is, who gave them that excuse? Are we the ones who gave them that excuse to try and hang their hat on? That's something to think about, isn't it? That's something to really think about. Paul then concludes this rather unflattering self-portrait of the Jews, these self-righteous folks, in verse number 25, when he says, For circumcision, it indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Paul says that, hey, if you're not going to live like God's chosen people, then that seal of the covenant that you take so much pride in Circumcision, the very thing that supposedly shows that you are in covenant relationship with God, you just might as well not even have it if you're not going to adhere to the terms of that covenant. Verse 26, here's an even harsher statement. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, a Gentile, then will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Yowza, Paul, did you, did you really just say that to those folks? Did you just say that an uncircumcised pagan who does the right thing is actually as good as a Jew who is circumcised? Yes, he did. That's exactly what Paul just said. Verse 27 now. Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law, then he, excuse me, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, but from God. Can you imagine there in verse 27, those Jewish brethren, what they might have thought? Paul, are you saying that Mr. Gentile over here, that there's some sense in which he's going to judge me? Well, I've been going to church all my life. And this guy over here, he hadn't even been a Christian, been converted for like a couple months. I mean, he was just baptized a couple of months ago. You're saying he's going to judge me? And Paul says, yeah, that's kind of what I'm saying. Because if he's keeping the law and he's doing what's right, then he's the one who's actually bringing glory unto God. You see, Paul's wanting to help these folks to understand as they move away from the old covenant and old system of doing things, that in Jesus Christ, it's about more than just these external things. God saw more glory in a Gentile that had lived humbly before Him than He did any Jew who was glorying in their flesh as they lived in arrogant hypocrisy. The real Israelite, the real Jew, the real person who's been chosen by God as His people is not the one who's taking pride in their physical circumcision or any of those other outward signs of the covenant. No. It's the one who has been circumcised in heart. The one who has had their sins cut away by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
and then is seeking to live for Him and bring glory to Him. That's how Paul concludes Romans the second chapter. And I'm going to tell you, if I had been sitting in that assembly, maybe I did give out a couple of amens throughout chapter 1. But as soon as chapter 2 began, I probably would have found my mouth shut very, very tightly. It's a tough chapter. It speaks not only to those Jewish folks and the prideful superiority that they felt, but I think it's a frontal assault on God's people today. I particularly think about my own life. I think about the advantages that I've had growing up in the church, so to speak. All those good blessings that God intended to be blessings in my life. And I think of all the ways in which I've abused those things. I think of the times that I've lived hypocritically and I've brought shame to God who gave those blessings to me and have not brought Him glory and honor. The challenge from this chapter, we might think, is well, we, we just need to do more, don't we? We, we? we need to get out there and just bang it out even more for the Lord. I don't think that's the takeaway from this chapter. I think the takeaway from this chapter is a very simple yet very deep self-examination that we need to be looking at our hearts. Paul concludes by talking about the heart and we need to look within our own hearts. Where am I? How am I living for the Lord and how then do I view myself? And furthermore, how do I view others? Paul's going to bring all of the ideas of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's going to bring them to kind of a, an early climactic head in chapter 3. Chapter 2 is the chapter that i got to tell you, I think it gives us some homework. You know, in just a few moments, we're going to stand and we're going to sing the song of invitation, song number 280, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. And that is, quite simply, what the invitation of heaven is all about. It is the opportunity to make the decision to follow Jesus. And to recognize that we, at the end of the day, we, we are simply sinners. We are in need of God's grace. We are in need of His mercy. And we are no different than anybody else. I look around this room tonight and I see people who have probably had a lot of those advantages that Romans chapter 2 is describing. Folks who have been brought to church for, if not all their lives, at the very least for a very long time. I see kids in this room who have godly parents and have tried to instill God's Word in their hearts. And that's a great thing. But I'm going to tell you, all of those advantages are for naught if we are not doers of the Word and if we do not respond to the gracious invitation that the Lord has extended to us. We do extend that invitation to you at this time. It is a chance for you to come forward and to announce and proclaim your faith in Jesus as the Son of God and to then be baptized, be united with Him in the waters of baptism so that all your past sins can be washed away and you can then be added to the body of Christ. Can we help somebody tonight to take that critical step and be a part of this wonderful family? We'll help each other. We'll do our best not to look down at one another, not to have those kinds of self-righteous attitudes. Instead, we're all, we're all just going to help each other to go to heaven in the very best way that we can. If you are a Christian but you've not been living as you should, maybe some of these ideas about self-righteousness. I talked about Jonah a few weeks ago. and That was kind of intentional to prepare us for what Romans 2 says. Maybe those things, they, they sting. And, and they should. If you feel that, you should not push that sting away. You should cause it to, to humble you. 
and to repent. And maybe that's something you want to do in a public way where you ask your brothers and sisters to pray for you and to help you and to encourage you so that all of us can truly live for the Lord in the way that brings the most honor to Him. If we can help anybody this evening to serve the Lord, then why don't you do something about that? Do that by coming to the front while we stand and while we sing.